Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. For the past seven weeks, we have been looking at Daniel chapter 9 and verses 24 to 27. Class teacher Doug Brady has emphasized the importance of these three verses and the content of them as prophecy and what we can expect in our future. And today we continue with that in the 27th verse of Daniel 9. The title of the lesson today is The Coming Prince, and you will begin to understand that as we get underway in this lesson. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of our new worship center building. Every week, we see new faces and people who are excited about deep study into the scriptures, and Doug certainly gives us that. We invite you to join us if you are in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so open your Bible to the ninth chapter of Daniel as we begin. Here now is our longtime teacher and good friend, Doug Brady. Daniel chapter 9. Let me tell you something. There are some of you who think we've been studying prophecy. In my mind, we haven't. We've been studying prophetical history. Because everything we've been studying up to now, in chapter 9 I'm talking about, has already happened. The prophecy that was given to Daniel in 538 B.C. has been fulfilled for the first three quarters of it. No, for the first 69 70ths of it. But today we're going to start on prophecy that's going to be in the future, that hasn't happened yet, and is going to tell us what's going to happen. And so today is an exciting day for me to start in on this. We have been looking at this as if these four verses are so important, and I believe they are, because they build the foundation for understanding all prophecy in the future for us after that. It's like these four verses lays the cement foundation and frames the home. And if you try to put a roof on a home without a frame on it, you're not going to get anywhere. And nobody can live there. So that's what this is. Now, we've been taking it one step at a time as we unpack this passage. And we've gone through seven steps if you remember, put those seven steps up there, Jerry. And each one tends to build upon the other. And I want you to, to remember the first one. I know I repeat it all the time, but this step one here, this prophecy is about Israel. And I think it's very, very important to understand that. And as we come to things here today and next week, you're going to see, can anybody think of another highly prophetical passage a uh, highly uh, a strong prophecy passage that's written only to the Jews. Deuteronomy 32, that wasn't the one I was thinking of, but yes. But has that been fulfilled yet? 
Yes. But I'm to Isaiah 56, 53. That's for the most part been fulfilled too, though. That's about our Savior, and it's already been fulfilled. I'm talking about it hasn't happened yet, but it's written to the Jews. What? And you're missing it. Matthew 24, 25. No, we didn't say Old Testament. No, you listen to these other people, and they misguided you. You know, Amalekites do that kind of thing. You're going to have to work on that. Don't let other people misguide you, Don. As you look through these steps, you will remember. And the last step is that there was a pause. And who is living in the pause? We are. How do you live in the pause? We're going to talk, be talking about that as we go on. But the first thing I want you to do is this last verse is so critical so important, we're going to need to understand some things about it. Now, how will the dark side view this passage? Yes, ma'am. Is Ezekiel 38 part of the pause? That's a very intriguing question, and I'm going to get into Ezekiel 38, 39, and Psalm 83 on a later lesson. Is Ezekiel 38 and 39 a part of the pause? It may be. It may not, but we'll talk about it because one of the questions we have at the end of this lesson that we won't be able to answer today is what makes up the covenant? We're going to try and recreate. Daniel doesn't tell us necessarily what's in the covenant, but we're going to try and recreate it. But I want you to see what the liberals have to say about this passage because they hate it. They hate it. Let's read it again. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. For in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations, which will come, will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Or I like to say on the desolator. Now, what do the liberals say? First of all, they'll say, this is talking about a seven-year period, one week. A seven-year period. And this period started on Palm Sunday. And it ended seven years after that. They will tell you that as you look at that, you need to understand the he. The antecedent of he. Well, now, I would agree with that also. We need to understand the antecedent of that pronoun. They say it's Messiah the Prince, Jesus Christ. That is who the he is in this passage. It's going to go on, and they're going to say that it is God, and in this case, the Son of God, who makes covenants with Israel. So if there's a covenant with Israel going to be made, it will be God who does it. And in fact, Jesus did that. And Jesus made that covenant. Now catch this. He made that covenant in the upper room when he was converting Israel to the church. And that's what they're saying. That's what they want to say. And it says, yeah, he stops the sacrifices. Of course he stops the sacrifices. Once he would sacrifice himself, you read in Hebrews, there is no need for sacrifices anymore. Now, that's what they are saying. And we're going to try and answer, is that accurate? Well, let's give a brief statement before we pray. I wanted to get the liberals' view out, out of the way before we prayed. 
But the antecedent to that pronoun he, they go back not to verse 26, but to verse 25. And anybody who understands rules of grammar, you go to the last proper noun or substitute for a proper noun to find the antecedent of the pronoun. That antecedent, that pronoun is not about Jesus. And the covenant he makes in the upper room that was not made with Israel, that was made with the church. It's a church's covenant, the new covenant in my blood. And the sacrifice and grain offering, did it stop seven years after, within the next seven years? No, within three and a half years after the Palm Sunday. No, they kept sacrificing all the way to 70 AD. It kept going. And of course, the one key thing they have a hard time explaining is at the end, it says a complete destruction is decreed for the desolator. The desolator is the he. Oh, Jesus is going to be destroyed? Yeah. I'm telling you. And they come up with such bogus stuff, but we want to find out what this verse really says. And we'll only get through part of it today. And I'm sorry for those of you who really want to get on to chapter 10 But this is where we need to make certain we understand. So let's pray together. Father, as we come here today, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak in each of our hearts. I pray that he will keep the distractions away from us this morning so that we can really come to understand what's being said in the first part of this verse. Help us to know that you are at work and that you are going to make things happen and that As time goes on, it'll become clearer and clearer that you're in control, you have a plan, that plan is being fulfilled just as you wrote it. Show it today. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look at this verse again, and I want you to see some things. This verse contains the final week of the 70-week prophecy. Remember, each week is seven years. 490 years total. This is the last week, the final seven years. This final seven years is what you typically refer to as the tribulation period. This is the tribulation. That's what it's talking about. That's why it's laying the framework for us. Where else in the scripture does it say the tribulation will be for seven years? Answer, nowhere. Now, in Revelation, it talks about periods of time in that tribulation that are three and a half years, but it doesn't say, well, see, that's half of the time. If you don't have Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, you don't know it's going to be seven years. That's first that I want you to see. The second thing that we need to see from this is that this, the first two time spans mentioned in verse 25 are start back to back. In other words, the, the seven sevens, the 62 sevens, which is 483 years, they have a start point for the first period, the first 49 years. There's no end point for that 49 years. There's no start point for the next uh, 434 years or whatever it is, 443 years, something like that. But it does have a stopping point, Palm Sunday. So th- that's a period of 483 years that runs contiguous or straight together, one after the other, continuous. So if we have a new seven-year period, what do we want to know? 
When does it start? And what God's going to do today is tell you, or not today, but in this verse is going to tell you, I'm going to tell you when it starts. I'm going to tell you what happens exactly in the middle of it. And I'm going to tell you what happens at the end of it. And so he is going to give us all of that information. Now, this final week has this event that occurs in the middle of it, three and a half years in. And it's going to say that the sacrifices and the grain offerings will be stopped. One of the things that I want you to understand, because in some of your minds, you're saying this, well, I know when the tribulation starts. It starts when the rapture occurs. No, that's not right. The rapture could occur 30 seconds before the tribulation starts. It could occur 30 minutes it could occur 30 days. It could occur 30 years before the tribulation starts. All we know is that the rapture has to occur before the tribulation starts. That's all we know. It's all God is telling us. He doesn't want us to know any more than that. But we do need to come to understand what starts it. And to do that, we need to look at several key words in this passage. Uh, several key words. The first one is the word covenant. It's bereath. And bereath means a covenant, meaning a contract, an alliance, or a pledge. Now, I want you to look at those three possibilities. A contract is where terms are exchanged, consideration is exchanged, and it's binding on the two. The alliance is where two countries or two powers, two parties come together and make a deal to work together. A pledge is usually where something is pledged to make certain that the pledge E knows that the pledge or will fulfill what he's going to do. The most common example of that would be a mortgage. You put your home up as security that you will pay the mortgage. That's the concept here. It can be any of those three things. And I believe that this is more carefully contract or, or described as an alliance. An alliance. Now, we want to find out who the alliance would be between if there is an alliance. But I want you to look at the next key phrase that we need to see here. He will make a firm covenant. Now, somebody who is rather astute, I, I hate to admit it, but rather astute, he made the comment last time, is that what we should understand it to really mean? And that was Mark, of course. Is it make like it is in the New American Standard? Or is it confirm like it is in the King James and the New King James? Which is the correct translation of that word? Well, just to make it really hard on you to understand, let me give you the definition of this word, gabar. It means to be strong or mighty. Would it be strong and mighty doing what? No, to be strong or mighty. So I went to my three key sources that I use. I use, who's the one who wrote dispensational? Clarence Larkin. I use Dr. Walford, and I use Arnold Fruchtenbaum. I looked first at Larkin. 
Would he choose the New American Standard or would he choose the King James or New King James? Well, there's a problem with that. He wrote in 1929, and there was no New American Standard. So I set him aside. Then I looked at Dr. Walvoord. He chose the New American Standard translation. But as I thought about it, this is such a Jewish way of writing things. What does Arnold say? Because Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a tremendous evangelical scholar, but he is as Jewish as Jewish can be. What did he say? The prince that shall come, or the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant. He will make it firm. He will make it strong. The Hebrew word does not mean to renew an existing covenant, but to make an original one containing strong guarantees. Now, therefore, if you write in your Bible, you sh- and you have a King James, or New, put a line through confirm, and above put make. Now, I notice all of my King James, my KJV positive people, they're not moving to make any notes on that at all. But the fact is, that's what we should understand. What does that mean? The he, the prince, is the one who is originating this deal with Israel. Why would he want to originate this deal with Israel? I mean, what is in it for him? Well, we want to try and find that out, the answer to that question. Now, let's look. I keep saying Israel. He makes the covenant with the many. Who are the many? Well, obviously, there's a definite article there, the. So it's one specific many. And what does that mean? I believe it means Israel. Arnold Fruchtenbaum believes it's Israel. But maybe the best question is, is there any place else in Scripture that would show that? Now, go uh, to Daniel chapter 11. I want you to see Daniel eleven thirty three, And look what it says. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by the flame, by captivity, by plunder for many days. Here it's talking about the destruction of Israel. That's if we could, once we get into Daniel 11, you'll see that. But that's who he's talking about, the many. That was what the phrase they tended to use. Daniel used it again in chapter 12, verse 3. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Do you remember what is going to happen? It says in chapter 9, verse 24. Sin will be eliminated from Israel, and they will all turn to the Messiah. That's what it's talking about, that event, the many. It's talking about the activity of the 144,000 and the two witnesses during that seven-year tribulation period. And I want you to see that. Now, the question then is, is Daniel the only Old Testament prophet who refers to Israel as the many? The answer is no. We go back to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, where it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, who is his soul in 53? That's Jesus. As the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears their iniquities. Talking about Israel. He's dying for the sins of Israel along with the rest of ours. But here he's making a special statement about his people. Why? Because it's his people who wanted to put him to death. 
or at least their leaders, but they all joined in. And so you see in each of these three passages, the many is referred to as Israel. I also found one place in the New Testament where this same phrase or the same word is used to refer to Israel. It's in Mark chapter 6, verse 2. And of course, the one speaking here is Jesus. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as this are performed by his hand. Now, he's in a synagogue. Who's in that synagogue? Are there any Gentiles there? No, they're not. They didn't even allow Malachites in there. And so the many is referring here by Mark, that is a strictly Jewish term, and it's referring to Israel. And so I want you to see now, what have we gathered so far? There was an alliance that's going to be made, and that alliance does what? It starts the tribulation period. That is the starting point. That alliance is going to be a firm alliance, which, originate, which is original and new. It's going to be between he and the many, that is, between Israel. So what we want to confirm, although I've given it away probably, who is the he? Now, like I told you, the liberals look for the antecedent in verse 25. But what you do when you're looking for an antecedent to a pronoun is you go back step by step by step, word by word, to find out the next proper noun or substitute for a proper noun. And that's what we want to look at today. In this case, there is a substitute for the proper noun, and it's in verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open up as I talk to you about this. It says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and he will have nothing. So who's he talking about first there? The Messiah. Then he says, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now you notice there, there are two different things. There's the Messiah and the prince. They're different. They're not the same. He would have gone on saying the, the sound be cut off and then his people will come. Didn't say that because they're two different things. And you need to see that. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. Now, this is very important because they also make, some people make mistakes as to who's destroying the city. And this is important to understand. Who destroys the city? You've got three choices. You've got the people, the prince, or both. Now, who do you think it is? Now, I hearing some of you making the mistake of joining with the Amalekite here. Is he ever right? Then why would you say the prince? Well, only when you listen to your wife. <laughs> now, what, is, what does it say again? We need to, you need to see this because this is very important. Some people who are really smart and who I have a great deal of respect for, they still miss it. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's the people who are destroying it. That happened not in 40 AD, but in 70 AD, right? Now, there's some people say, uh-uh, that prince is Titus. 
Titus, Flavius, whatever his name is. Do you think it's Titus? Well, just do you think it's Titus? Yeah, okay, well, good, because I didn't want you to, to say that because that would not look good for you. This is not Titus, Gary. This is the Roman people who Titus led to destroy, but he didn't come separately from the people. Remember, reading this, it says, the prince, the people of the prince who is to come. It's the prince who is the subject of is to come, not the people. The people are, is the subject of will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, do we know, here again, some people didn't like this fact, but this word people in the Greek, I mean in the Hebrew, refers to nationality, families, clans. And who would that be? Romans. Romans. Now, we'll talk more about that in, near the end here when I really freak some of you out. But the fact is, this prince is not coming in 70 A.D., whenever the people came. He's coming after that. And this prince is the antecedent of the pronoun he. Now, you know this guy by the name Antichrist. That's who it is. That's who's coming. But we want to make certain. Here's what I try and do when I share these things with you. I don't want you to accept it because I told you. I want you to accept it because I provide you the proof that you can take and prove it to someone else. And that's what we're trying to do here. And I want you to see this. Yes. So, so the people and the many are separate is what you're saying. The people is different from the many. The many is Israel. So the people who destroy the city and the sanctuary is not going to be Israel. And the he who is making the alliance with the many, is not coming with the people, but will come at a later time. And so, it's a little confusing. Notice up here, here's the decree to restore and rebuild uh, Jerusalem. 69 weeks have passed until Messiah the Prince comes, not at the time of the crucifixion, but at Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the crucifixion, then there is a pause, and that pause is the church age, and it, it goes. During this pause, events happened. The Messiah was cut off, that is crucified, killed. The temple and the city were destroyed in, on August 6, 70 A.D. But now the coming prince will come here at this point, and that's where he's going to make the alliance. So we're living in the pause. Chris? The nationality of the prince for the people. That's what I read it as. Now, here again, there's going to be, for example, in chapter 2, ten-nation confederacy. Some want to argue he comes from the ten-nation confederacy, which is the revived Roman Empire. Some people want to say he comes from the ten horn, one of the ten horns, of the beast, the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. And he's the little horn. And I would agree he's the little horn. They could say, couldn't Rome or Italy be part of one of those ten horns, but maybe he could come from one of the other horns. I can't tell you, no, that's not right. It seems to me, though, that he's Roman. 
because of that word. Now, let's look at some things that we do know about this person, the prince that is to come. Number one, he's male. And of course, most of the females in the room are saying, well, that should be obvious. (laughs) But two, he is the same nationality as the people who destroyed the temple along with the city of Jerusalem. That is, he's Roman of origin. That's what I believe. Number three, he enters into a seven-year treaty with the nation of Israel, an alliance with them. Number four, He will break that treaty after the first three and a half years of its passage by stopping all sacrifices and grain offerings. Now, I want you to think about this. Can you tell me the last treaty or alliance or pledge made to Israel that someone has kept? Going all the way back to the Balfour Declaration. If we had the Balfour Declaration in in, in effect today, we wouldn't have... Everybody lies to Israel. Why? Because they're God's people. Satan hates them. All right. He will be responsible for what is called the abomination of desolation. He will do that. Now, we're going to talk about what that means, the abomination of... I know to some of you, why do you use these terms? He, the many, uh, make when it says strong, abomination of desolation. I don't understand any of those things. Well, I'm going to try my very best to, to get us to a point where we can understand that. Now, let's talk about the abomination of desolation for just a minute. The first time we heard that, it was about a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 8. Do you remember that? What did he do? He went into the temple and he placed in the holy place a statue of Zeus. And then he took pig and he... He sacrificed it on the brazen altar in front of that statue. And then he took the juices from that pig and anointed every part. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think he would have anointed the Holy of Holies? I think he did. And why do I think he did? Because when Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory leave, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. Wasn't there. And neither was the Shekinah glory of God. And therefore, he was safe to go in there. They probably, there was a bunch of uh, Jewish priests who were standing around saying, ha, I can't wait for him to go into there. I can't wait to see this. And then they, what happened? Only the high priest and they weren't keeping it a secret. They didn't want the word to get out. Because what if all the people knew? There's no holy and holy. They're going out there and, and dropping the blood just in the middle of the floor. That's why someone took that curtain and they tore it in two. So everybody could see there's no ark in there. Blood's been dropped on the floor. All right. So he did that. That was the first time it talks about the abomination of desolation. It's going to talk about it two other places in this book besides chapter 9. In verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 31, it says, and forces will be mustered by him. Him here is the Antichrist. Forces will be mustered of him, and they will defile the sanctuary fortress, the temple fortress, and they will take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, here again, what was the thing that, that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes placed there? Statue of Zeus. So when this prince who is to come, what is he going to place there? It's abomination, desolation, some kind of statue. What is he going to put? 
We're going to try and answer that. Look in uh, Daniel 12, verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, the abom- and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, wait a second. 1,290 days? Wait, wait. 360 times 3.5 is what? One, isn't it 1,260 days? Where do the other 30 days come? Oh, are we going to answer that today? No, we're going to wait till we get to Daniel chapter 12. But I want you to know those are questions we got to keep in mind. Now, is there any other passages in the scripture that will give us some indication of what this abomination of desolation is and who this prince is to come to confirm it? Well, I would suggest first, we look at one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. We'll look at several passages here, but we'll look at 3 and 4 first. He says, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, that is, the day of the Lord or the tribulation. It will not come unless the disappearance comes first and the law, man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. I have to admit here, I like the translation of the King James better, the son of perdition. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship. Is that not exactly what the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 did? Yes, and he made of these great boasts. And he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So what does it say in this guy will do? This man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, he will take his seat like it's a throne in the temple, claiming to be God. Now, one other question before I, I, I turn to Mark. Will he be able to do any miraculous events to prove that he's divine? Yes, he will. The same way that Pharaoh's magicians were able to do miraculous things like make serpents appear out of sticks. All right, Mark. Yeah, you know, the temple did not exist at the beginning of the tribulation. It doesn't exist right now. But they're going to build it. It it, For him to do this, it has to be. There has to be a temple. Okay, with that said, I think the possibility of him confirming or making a covenant is to appease the Jews to allow them to empower up to build this temple because he knows what he's going to do later. And so he's letting them do the work because there's no temple. He has to have the temple to do this. You're right. He wants them to build the temple for him. And you've gotten the first prong, I think, of the covenant, which we'll talk about next week. One of the questions is, how long will it take to build that? Well, some people are going to suggest to you something on the order of 266 days. Let me just make a suggestion to some homework you might want to do. What you might want to do is figure out how many days there are in the entire seven-year period of the tribulation and then subtract the 2,300 days from that that's in chapter 8, the 2,300, and then you might find how long it's going to take to build a temple. Question, Patsy, 
She, somebody's pointing at you, so I just figured. It was, it was me. I was going to say, we watched the documentary, and I don't know if I, I, I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it was about Israel. Yes. And they are already, uh, y'all may know this, but they're already storing up. Oh, yes. I mean, you know how long Solomon took. You know how long is their battle. This will not be measured in years. This will be measured in days. And what is it called? The temple... What authority, the temple institute, the temple institute, and they have now they won't show everybody some of these things. They already have the golden candlesticks. They already have the table of showbread, the altar of insurance, the brazen altar. They don't have the ark of the covenant because they believe they're going to find that. And then there's the question of the ashes of the red heifer. But if it's going to be where it was. Will a bomb or something have to remove what was there? Something will have to happen to the mosque. Now, there's people who believe, no, the mosque is on the wrong spot. But the temple that they want to build, it's got to, I don't, even if the mosque is on the wrong spot, if you bring the temple on what they, other people say is the right spot, it, it's going to still, it can't be there with the mosque. The mosque can have to be removed. Now, my opinion is going to be this, and I don't know, we're not doing good on time, but so what? So what? Here's the thing. Right now, Kim, if the United States and the European Union and Russia and China all made a treaty with Israel right now, you can destroy the mosque and build your temple. What would happen? Those Muslim nations would go absolutely dog wild. They wouldn't stop. They would be... Holy war everywhere. Okay. What if a series of nations around Israel attacks them and God destroys them? That is Muslim nations. So the nations that are farther away now, there's this vacuum because Israel defeated, it appears, all of those nations because God was fighting for them. And then these other nations all around that decide to attack and God destroys all of them. And the Muslim power is decimated. So there's no one left to attack if they did destroy the mosque. Oh, people are thinking way ahead of me, but we haven't gotten to that yet. And so I'm not talking about that anymore. Now, you saw what we talked about. And there was the statue, or he's putting himself in the temple. That is this Antichrist. And he's coming back. And now let's look at Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read 11, 15, and 20, those verses. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now it's important to remember that. A sharp sword, where does it come from? His mouth. And from his mouth which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now let's think about that just a second. Is there going to be grapes in that winepress? No, what is it going to be? People. And their blood will flow out of there. And the blood will flow as high as the horse's bridle. Now, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, I was going to show you a picture of Jesus coming back with his army. And I had found, uh, as I looked very carefully at that picture, 
I could see both myself and Chris Florence riding side by side on these white horses. But I didn't get a chance to put that in there. I went to a party yesterday that was wonderful, so I'm sorry I can't show you that. But it, when it happens, Chris and I will keep you informed. And uh, so... And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, and those who were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Now there's some people who believe that that mark will be something that's injected to in you under your skin. Now I don't, you know, would, would the world ever really go to have something forcibly injected into them? I'm sure not. So we go on. Now, we're looking at a second beast now, which is the false prophet. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercised as all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now, What's going to happen is they're going to make it appear as if the Antichrist is killed and then rises from the dead. Well, why? Because he's the Antichrist. That's why. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven in the presence to the earth in the presence of men. How many people will be doing that when that's going on in this seven-year period? Three, the false prophet and the two witnesses which I believe will be Moses and Elijah. All right. You know, Elijah didn't just call fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel. He continued to do that when he needed to. Gary? Chapter 11, the two prophets, the fire comes out of their mouth, not out of yeah. heaven. From the two witnesses? Well, well, when we get to that, we'll look. Let's look at a Revelation 11, though. Just one and two, I want you to see something here. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will trot it or tread it under feet, the holy city, for 42 months. Now, Dr. Walford says this is when the temple is going to be destroyed or, or, or taken over, not destroyed, but taken over by the Antichrist and the people of the earth who are all against the Messiah, Messiah, the Prince, and for 42 months. And so you begin to see these things about him. Now, there's something very important that I want you to see. It's back in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is a little difficult to, to understand at first. But I think if you stay with me, just stay with me here, you'll get it and you'll see it. Starting in 2 Thessalonians, and you know what restrains him now. What is he saying? He's talking about the Antichrist. Now remember, is Satan omniscient? No. Does he know when the rapture is going to occur? So he doesn't know when the, when the tribulation can start. But he has his man prepared and ready. So when it does happen, he can move. And what you've got here is someone is restraining him from bringing his man in. Now, who is that someone? It's got to be someone stronger than Satan, right? To restrain Satan. If, he, if Satan's stronger than the restrainer, then he could just bowl him over. 
So it's the Holy Spirit who's doing that. How do you know it's the Holy Spirit? Does it say it in here that it is? No, it doesn't say it. It says, you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. That is, the, the prince to come, the Antichrist, will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so when he is taken out of the way. If you try to search for an antecedent for that pronoun he in chapter 7, you won't find it. But if you look at the Greek grammar and compare it to John chapter 16, you will. What do you mean compare it to the Greek grammar? Well, I want you to look first at verse 6. It's in the notes and you'll see the actual Greek. But there's these three four words here. Let's hit the first. The first one is chi. And chi is translated and. You see the first part of chapter 6, and. And then comes the verb or the adverb noon, which is now. And then two is the definite article. And then this word katakan. And katakan means to hold back or restrain. So they translate it, and you know what restrains. The pronoun to is translated what. And the reason is, do you notice what the gender is of that pronoun? It's neuter. Neuter. All right? Keep that in mind. Now let's go to verse 7. In verse 7, it's going to say, only he who now restrains. So... You look in verse 7 there, you'll see the first word is manon, which means only or alone. It's an adverb. And then o is the definite article. And then this same verb, katakon, and it means to restrain or hold back. But in this case, in verse 7, this definite article is not neuter. It's masculine. And this verb right here to restrain is not neuter. It's masculine. Now, the verbs in Greek are put in a gender so you know the pronouns to put out there. Here, it's he, masculine. So what we have, this same entity or person is neuter and then masculine. How can that be? Because you look at the Greek word that is translated spirit and it's pneuma, and it has a standard neuter designation. But when Jesus used it in John chapter 14, verse 26, he refers to it in this way. Look at, look at uh, 1426. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, now, can there be any question who the helper is? It's the Holy Spirit. But that word spirit there, pneuma, it's neuter. Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. What kind of pronoun is that? Masculine. It refers here, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as neuter and masculine. So when Paul talks about him in 2 Thessalonians 2, it's neuter and masculine. You don't need an antecedent because there's nothing else that is neuter and masculine. It's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is restraining. Now, think about this. If the restraining, where is the Holy Spirit dwelling right now? 
the, the technical answer is he's dwelling in the temple. What temple is that? Demaris, what temple? Your body. In particular, your soul. He's dwelling in our spirits. If his restraining force is going to be removed, who else does he have to take? Us. So, when the restraining stops, the rapture will occur, and then the man of lawlessness will be brought out. So, what you need to see here is how this is working, and that's what's coming. Now, for one thing that's a little confusing to some, but once you understand God's purpose, it's really not that confusing. Why doesn't he use the same name for the Antichrist all the way through Scripture? That way we know we don't have a problem. The prince who is to come, uh, who, what is the prince who is to come? What is this guy? What does it mean when he says the son of perdition? Why can't he use the same name? Because he wants to show something different about this man each and every time. I went through and did a search for his names. And I maybe left out one or two. I hope not. But let's look at them very quickly. First of all, in the Revelation, they refer to him as the beast. Because that's how God sees him, as a beast, animal. And that's the last name that is used for him. Now, the next one, and that's John wrote that in 1 John 2. He calls him the Antichrist. That's where that name came from uh, in 1 John. Then in 2 Thessalonians, where we looked in verse 8, he calls him the lawless one and calls him the son of perdition. Let me stop there, son of perdition. That is the only time that name is applied to anyone in the scripture except for one other time. Do you know who else was referred to as the son of perdition? Judas. Very good. Judas. Why would he give the Antichrist in Judas the same moniker? Well, you, you look in Clarence Larkin's Dispensational Truths and you may find something that's rather disturbing to you. But anyway, let's go back. The next one, the man of sin. That's back in the first part of 2 Thessalonians. The willful king in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, he's going to call him the little horn, the desolator. I forgot Daniel 9, 27. How can I forget that? The desolator, the one who's going to bring about the abomination of desolation. Now, the next one in that is on the 26th, the prince that shall come. And then the little horn in Daniel 7, 8. Now, this next one is the one that may cause some concern to you. The seed of Satan. Right? The seed of Satan. Now, let's talk about that just a second. What does the word seed in the Hebrew word, because that's in Hebrew in Genesis 3.15, what does that word seed mean? It can mean offspring. Now, I'm hoping we're all adults enough that you're not going to be offended and I'm going to say something out of the Scripture. But there's a story in the scripture where this word translated here, seed, is used. And it has to do with a brother who, or a man whose brother dies. And he has to go in under the law to his brother's wife to raise up an uh, offspring to her. And the scripture says that he's having sex with her and he stops and spills his seed on the ground. 
because he didn't want to produce any children. That is also another meaning of the word seed. This is a key verse in the start of the scripture where the Messiah or our salvation is predicted from the very, very first. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now he's talking to Satan who inhabited the serpent. I will put enmity. I will make you at war with each other. I will put enmity between you and the, and the woman. Now think about this a second. Do you remember the story in Revelation chapter 12? And who the, the dragon is trying to destroy? The woman. He hates her. And between your seed and her seed. Now, the rabbis always had problem with that. Her seed doesn't go. You can't have her seed. Seed is male. It cannot be female. I mean, a, a, a description like that would mean a birth without a male or a conception without a male. Now you begin to see who, that, who that's referring to. He shall bruise, or you could translate it strike or smite you on the head. That is Satan. And you shall bruise, smite, strike him on the heel. Heel wound is painful, but it is not fatal. Head wound is fatal. If you ever saw the passion of the Christ and you see Jesus in the garden and you see Satan there and the snake starts to come out from under Satan and starts to go towards Jesus. And then what do you see all of a sudden? Jesus' foot stomping the head of that serpent and killing it. That's what it's talking about. That's the verse that they got that from. Now, because of the unusualness of this description, her seed, we tend to pass over and miss the phrase right before that. Your seed. Your seed, your there is singular. Whose seed is it referring to? Satan. Can Satan, does, wait, does Satan have seed? Yes. And all the angels who fell with him. And you look what he had happen in Genesis chapter 6. What would that indicate to you about the Antichrist or the beast? Part angel, part man. Has that ever happened before? Oh yeah, read Genesis right before the flood. Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. Now, some people say, Doug, that's crazy. I, I could never believe anything like that. But you make up your own mind. But I'm here to share with you and tell you what's going on. And what the scripture says. And you make up your own mind. Now, do we have time to talk about the contents of the covenant? Absolutely not. I've already gone way over time. But... <laughs> Next time, we're going to try and start there. Well, no, we're actually going to start with the 2,300 days. But we'll do that. Raina. Using the Bible as 266 days to build the temple back. I can't remember what it is, the exact dates now. Whatever it is, both Christians know that the time is coming that there will be a major revival across the world. Well, not necessarily. But we will talk about that when we talk about Matthew 24 and 25, which we will so we can understand it. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could get together and that we could talk about this key scriptural prophecy that you've given to us through the prophet Daniel. Father, I pray that you'll give us great insight and understanding so that we can see what is coming in our world and what is going to happen and what we need to prepare those for who may have to go through it because they haven't received you as their Savior yet. They don't have a personal relationship with you. Help us to be courageous 
and aggressive in sharing our faith so that people won't have to go through this horrible time. Now, Father, awaken our nation and bring her back to you. I don't care who the man is. Men can't change what Satan has done in our country. Only you can. But your church is still here. And your Holy Spirit is still the restrainer and the empowerer. And I pray that you will empower a great awakening in our country. People will turn back to you and away from wickedness and sin. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, the Son who died for us, the Son who rose again to display his godly divinity power, divine power, and who is coming back for us one day. Please have him come soon. Amen.